You guys have a great time. We'll see you later on. can't believe how many kids are emptying out of here. It's awesome. Absolutely. Praise God. Yeah, wonderful. Um, Hey, welcome to Grace Meadows Church. We're glad you're here this evening. We are in the fifth week of our Hard Questions series. Next week, we're going to conclude the series, and here's what I'd like to do next week. Between now and, let's say, Monday, if you want to just give me your hard questions... We will try to address those. Now, I can't promise anything. If I get 30 questions, I'm probably not going to be able to answer all of them. But I'd like to take four or five at least next week and address some of the questions that you may have. So text me, uh, send me a message, DM me, I don't know, ask me in person, and uh, I'll write those down. If I can't answer those next Wednesday, maybe we can talk through them another time. But I thought that'd be maybe a fun way to conclude the series. As for tonight, our question is very simply who is Jesus? And tonight's going to be a little bit more academic in nature, a little more apologetic in nature, kind of like what Steve did last week. He did a really good job with that last week. And Joel's happy back there. I see. Oh, you weren't giving me a thumbs up. You were just writing. Okay. But still, he's giving me a thumbs up anyway. And this is a question that I think anybody who is genuinely and objectively searching out truth, this is a question that people have to answer because He is the most written about historical figure by far. And not only that, but he comes from a small town in Israel. And at that time when, you know, you were written about, you were really, you had to be like a ruler or a king of some sort to be written about. So this Jewish man, um, 2,000 years ago, is the most written about person. And not only that, but he also claimed to be God. So we got to do something with that. So here tonight, we're going to look at the four leading theories of who Jesus is. We're going to look at Islam, we're going to look at Judaism, we're going to look at atheism, and of course, we're going to look at Christianity. And here tonight, my, my goal is certainly not to take shots at anybody's belief system or anything like that. I want to be very respectful of those things. But also, when you are searching for truth... Sometimes you have to point out what something isn't just as well as what something is. So tonight we're going to search for truth together and we're going to look at who is Jesus. Let's start with the Islamic view. Uh, Muslims believe that Jesus was a great prophet. So there is some reverence to the name of Jesus in Islam, but they just don't believe that he's the Son of God. Uh, There's a couple problems, I think, with just saying that Jesus is a great prophet. The first one is that he accepted worship. All right, so think about somebody we really look up to, like Ira, who came in here a couple weeks ago, right? If somebody starts bowing down and worshiping Ira, he would be the first to rebuke you and say, you worship God, you worship God alone, right? And so 
the prophets of the past would have always pointed to God and worshiping God. And so when Thomas, somebody like Thomas, sees the resurrected Jesus and says, my Lord and my God, you would think that that moment would be the moment that Jesus would rebuke him and say, stop, you only serve God alone unless he is the Lord and he is God. So he accepts worship. This is a big problem with the view that he's just simply a prophet. Now, the other issue of seeing him as just a prophet is that prophets would always come and they would be proclaiming something from God and about God. So you take John the baptizer, for example. He says, there's one coming whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. And then Isaiah proclaims the suffering servant to come, or Joel uh, prophesies that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all the people one day. But when Jesus comes, Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God has come, that it is here now, as if this is the moment where the king makes his entrance into the world. He says, repent in Matthew. For why? For the kingdom of God has come near. So his prophesying is that the kingdom has come. That's so important. He is the one who all the scriptures point to. Now there's one more issue with the Islamic view in that there's, um, in the Quran, there's a, a reference to the cross that scholars outside of this religion uh, just don't accept. That it says that Jesus did not die on the cross, that it was somebody else. And if you look at Judaism, if you look at Christianity, if you look at atheism, if you look at all these first century scholars, they just reject the notion that Jesus did not die on the cross. We have four first century sources confirming his death on the cross outside of the Bible. Now, by any historical metric, that's amazing. I mean, we teach about Alexander the Great, and we have one source 400 years later, and we teach it as if it's historical fact. But even outside of the scriptures, we have four sources that confirm the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, we have it from uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian. We have it from uh, Tacitus, Lucian, and I'm going to try my shot at this name, Marabar Seraponian. That's not it. It can't be it, but something like that. Anyway, the, the evidence is so strong that Gerd Ludemann, who's an atheist scholar, says this. He says, it is indisputable that Jesus died on the cross. That's an atheist scholar saying that. So if you want to believe the view, the Islamic view, that Jesus dying on the cross didn't happen, then you have to reject every other type of scholar from the first century who says that Jesus died on the cross. Now let's move to the next one, Judaism. Jews generally believe that Jesus was a false messiah, a false prophet. And this, uh, the largest piece of this evidence points to the fact that uh, they look at Old Testament prophecy in Scripture and say that, that they're expecting a different kind of messiah. What is interesting to me, though, is that, that Jews certainly don't discredit the, the fact that Jesus died on the cross, and they don't discredit the, the fact that he was buried in the tomb, and at least first century Jews didn't dispute the fact that Jesus was not in the tomb at one point. 
So he was in the tomb, and then he was not in the tomb. They, they say it like this. They say, the disciples took the body. Now think about that statement. That's, that's a big deal to hear that statement, right? That's like saying, the dog ate my homework. You're conceding that you don't have it. You don't have your homework, right? So the point being here is that they're not even trying to argue if if they, if they thought for a second that Jesus was still in the tomb, wouldn't they just say, go check, go check the tomb. He's still in there, right? But they're conceding the fact that he's not in the tomb. I find that very, very interesting. And to take this view that the disciples took the body, man, that's, I mean, that's saying a lot. This is like the greatest heist in the history of the world, I think. I mean, think about who the disciples are, right? They're all teenagers except for Peter. Peter's probably 20 because Jesus talks to him about the temple tax. You had to be 20 to pay the temple tax. But all the rest are teenagers. And they're not just any teenagers. They're the teenagers that all the other rabbis passed on to follow them, right? They went on with their everyday life because they didn't quote-unquote measure up to the rabbi's standards. So these are the ones who somehow fool the most powerful religious leaders of the day who are sitting under the thumb of the most powerful uh, generation, really, of soldiers, of Roman soldiers, and 2,000 years they hold this lie together. Man, that's, that's believing a lot in these disciples, right? And I have a couple issues with, with that view. One, very simply, is who led that mission? I mean, think about it. Uh, it, was it Peter that led the mission? I mean, the, the guy who's pretty impulsive, right? He just says what's on his mind. You, you wouldn't think that he was able to sort of calculate this and orchestrate this big elaborate plan when he's always just saying what's on his mind. And so I find that to be a big issue for that. The other issue, though, I have with the body being stolen is that the disciples had already gone back to their normal routine. Now, remember we talked about in the fall, we talked about when you'd follow a rabbi and that rabbi would die or something, you really had two options. It was to go and try to follow another rabbi at that point or just go back to your everyday lives. And certainly these disciples didn't have rabbis beating down their door for them to come follow them. So they just went back to their everyday lives. And so I think that's really important for us to recognize that that they weren't even looking for a resurrection. I mean, they didn't really understand what the resurrection was until Jesus has been resurrected, and he shows them and he tells them about the resurrection. I mean, to say the disciples stole the body, to what end? Because they're not even looking for a resurrection, right? In fact, if you really loved somebody and you cared about them and your mind is not set on a resurrection, you would want them to be in a place that you could visit and that would be a very good place for them to be. And that's exactly where Jesus was. Jesus was in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a very wealthy Jewish man who gave him a very good spot for his body to lay to rest. So you would want him to be a place like that. And the other issue with this is the women who were very close to the disciples during this time, they continue to do what? They go to the tomb to visit him. They wait till after the Sabbath and they go to the tomb to visit him. If they had known 
that his body had been taken, they would have gone to the place that his body was taken. But they didn't do that. They went to the tomb expecting to see Jesus' body there. Now, another theory that I find really interesting is that um, people would say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He survived the crucifixion. Now, I find this one just basically unacceptable. I'd love for you guys to, to try to research this yourself, but I can't find a single documentation that shows anybody surviving Roman crucifixion. Because what they would do is, and this is kind of graphic, but what they would do is they'd stretch your arms out wide enough to where as soon before they even did anything else, they would nail your hands to the cross, but they would bring you so uh, stretched out that you couldn't expand your lungs. So it was as if you were going basically into a tank of water before they even did anything else. So it was baked in that they would crucify you, that you didn't have a chance to actually survive it. Now, another theory is that um, when you undergo Roman crucifixion, they would say that... um, that, that they wouldn't allow you to go to a tomb, right? The, the idea being that, you know, they, often they would let you die there and they'd keep you there for a period of time. And that is true. But we also have found fossils that show that they would allow people after crucifixion to be buried. For instance, they've found ankle bones that have had nails go through them. And these bodies were buried in tombs. And we've actually found since, I think in 1968, we found uh, notes from Roman law that says after the crucifixion has been carried out that they can be buried and they can be placed into tombs. Y'all, Jesus was buried in a tomb. He was crucified and he was buried. The question is, what happened next? And if you believe that this is the greatest heist of all time, man, I think that takes a lot of faith itself. (laughs) It may take just as much faith as believing that he was the son of God and he was resurrected. Because that is a big, long shot. So, now let's take the atheist view. That he was a good, moral teacher. Uh, it should be noted that, and again, check me on, please check me on all this. Because if I don't have it right, I'd love to know. But from my research, I can't find any documents in the first or second century or several generations after Jesus where anybody claims that Jesus was just a good guy. I mean, I can't find it anywhere. And I think what happened is as generations go by and they get removed, you're really faced with two questions. Was Jesus from the enemy and had sort of evil powers that he utilized, or was he the son of God and used God's power? And you're sort of stuck in the middle. It's almost like when you're, when you're super far removed from it, it's almost like you can't really decide these two extremes. So you just like split the difference and you're like, yeah, maybe he was just a good teacher. And I think that's probably what happened because when you were right there in that time period of Jesus, you could not say he was just a good moral teacher. There was so much power around his name and is so much power around his name. I mean, dead people were claiming to be raised by Jesus. Blind people were saying that they've received their sight from Jesus. They were claiming that they saw him walk on water, that he made uh, storms be calm, that he made demons flee out of people. I mean, there's so much power in his name that you couldn't just claim, ah, yeah, he's a good moral teacher, just like other teachers. That just wasn't possible. 
at the time period. But when some time goes by, you think, wow, did those things really happen? You know, I see some of the teachings of Jesus and they're good teachings and stuff like that. So I can accept some of those things because they make sense. But some of these miracles, I mean, they're so out there. So why don't I just reject those and just say, yeah, he was a good moral teacher. No, I think the most likely scenario you have to look at is the Jewish view that he's from the enemy using the powers of the enemy or that he's the son of God. Because there's too much power around his name to say anything else, to say he's anything uh, like an ordinary human, because there's so much power in his name. And by the way, this is exactly why the Jews wanted him killed, because he claimed to be the Son of God. And uh, you might say what a lot of the secular atheist culture says today, that he never really did claim to be the Son of God. And I find that interesting. One of the arguments for that is just that that the Gospel of John, especially in the letters of John, are written around 90, 95 A.D., so they're kind of removed from the situation. But even if you took all the New Testament out of it, I mean, and I think that's hard to do, right, because so many people rested on the authority of the New Testament, right? They'd quote that. So like tonight, if I said, uh, all that counts is faith expressed, uh, all that counts is faith expressing itself through love, you would say, oh, Dallas isn't just saying that. Dallas is quoting from Galatians 5. And that's what people quickly did. They used the authority. They rested on the authority of the apostles' writings. And so you find a lot of references to the New Testament. You don't find a ton of other people kind of making things up in the meantime as well. But, but you do have two. And again, we're talking about ancient historical record. And... To have ancient historical record at the time of the events is a huge deal. And so we have two that we can speak of. Again, by other standards, by other secular standards, we're talking hundreds of years, one source, and we're seeing it as fact. Well, we have two. We have one from Polycarp who was taught by an apostle. He was appointed by John as bishop where he references the resurrection in a letter five different times. And we have Clement, who was ordained by Peter as bishop. He writes about the resurrection as well to a church. So we have two independent references to the resurrection. And so it's very clear to me that that there was at least some prestige, some power being pointed to very early on in reference to him being the Son of God. We have someone here who claimed to be God and showed that he is greater than death itself by rising from the dead. So, let's move to the Christian belief, right? Um, One of the biggest misconceptions, I think, and one of the reasons why people turn from Christianity and embrace other things is that there's this huge misconception that the writings about Jesus are so far removed from the time of Jesus. And I find that argument so very interesting because we actually have information right to the time of Jesus. And I'm going to get to that here in just a minute. But even if you didn't have that, even if you didn't have it within just a couple of years, all the letters in the New Testament start in 48 AD. So we're talking about 18 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the last gospel is written around 95 AD. So if you compare that, if you have a fair standard at play, The Quran is written over 600 years after 
the events take place, and they're written from an entirely different area than where the events take place. And then if you take Judaism as well, in the Old Testament, there are uh, books that are written about in far larger gaps of time than we're talking here in the New Testament. And certainly, we've talked about in the secular world, there are things that we are taught that is just historical fact that sometimes are hundreds of years removed from it, and it's one source. So if you want to apply that standard, even if we didn't have it right up to the time of Jesus, we have it closer than really anything else in that time period. I mean, we have within 20 years letters that we know have been written. I mean, same eyewitnesses are still alive at this period of time. That's a big deal. But here's the thing. We don't have to wait 18, 20 years. We have information right to the time of Jesus' resurrection. So I'd love to talk about that here as we move forward. If you have your Bible, it's 1 Corinthians 15, if you'll turn there. Um, There's a creed of the earliest church that Paul references here in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read that. And now stay with me because this can be a little bit confusing, but it's really important. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension was likely 30 A.D. So 1 Corinthians is written in 53 or 54 A.D. But in this letter, we have reference to Paul going and visiting Corinth, which happened in 50 A.D. So right now we're at 20 years, a 20-year gap. But let's read what he says here in 1 Corinthians, and I'll explain why it's so important. Starting in verse 3. It says, For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died, this is the creed, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul starts by saying in verse 3, he says, what he's received, he's passing on. So what's he talking about? Well, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus one or two years after Jesus' resurrection. And he records this in Galatians 1, 18 through 20. He says, then, after three years. So what he's saying here is, after he's encountered Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he says, then after three years from that time, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, talking about Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, what I am writing you is no lie. So, when he writes 1 Corinthians, the things he has received, he has, uh, the things he's passed on, he's talking about this creed that he learns from Peter no later than 35 AD. So he meets with him in 35 AD and learns this creed, the basis of the Christian faith that he is now teaching to the, ch- the church which he must have received within no later than five years of the resurrection of Jesus. Y'all, by all accounts, all historical accounts, I mean, that is right up to the resurrection. And this is what he's passed on, that Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and the sisters. The earliest documents say this, this creed, and he appeared to more than 500 people. And we can say with absolute clarity that this is true because the disciples go from self-preservation to giving their lives to the gospel. Everything changes with the resurrection. And y'all, you don't die for guilt or for a hallucination. You die because your reality has changed. That's why you give up your life. The evidence is overwhelming. Gary Ludman, our, our atheist friend, he says this about it. He says, it is historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences of encountering the resurrected Jesus. Now, I find that really interesting coming from an atheist, right? That he says that they had experiences. And the, the loophole sort of here that he's found is that he believes that they were hallucinations. That over 500 people hallucinated that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And I, I find that that's interesting, too, because the nature of hallucinations is on the individual level, right? I mean, I don't, I don't come to you and say, man, wasn't that a great dream I had last night? right? That's, that's not how that works, right? So even if David came in here and he gave us, a, you know, the wrong mushrooms for a midweek meal, right? And just, you know, things just kind of got crazy. We all had a hallucination. David, would you, would you do that to us? Yeah, I don't know. But even if we all had a mass hallucination, we wouldn't all even have the same type or category of hallucination, let alone the exact same hallucination at the same time, right? So I think to believe that over 500 people had the same exact hallucination at the same time, that takes just as much faith as saying he's the son of God and he was resurrected, because that is a big deal. That's not something we see on an individual level we have hallucinations, not on a group level we have hallucinations. And it still remains that you don't die even for a great hallucination. Man, what a great hallucination I had. I'm going to give my life to it now, right? That's just not how it works. You give your life when your situation has changed altogether. The best possible explanation is that the resurrection itself changed everything for the disciples. Changed everything. Because not one single one of them recanted that we know of. I mean, you would think that if it wasn't real, someone would come forward and say, actually, you know what, like, it, it was a lie. Or, or at least, I'm not really sure about this whole Jesus thing anymore. Or, or, yeah, I made it up because I felt guilty about abandoning Jesus. You don't get that from any of the disciples. You don't even get, yeah, I believed it to be true before, but now that I'm under persecution, now I'm recanting. You get an ultimate authority shift, an ultimate hierarchy shift happen with the resurrection of Jesus. They say, yeah, you want to take my life? Go ahead. But, but I've found my life in Jesus because he has conquered the grave. He is God. He is the resurrection. He is life. And so now I'm giving my life to this because I've seen the resurrected Jesus face to face. And it went so far beyond head knowledge to them. 
I mean, we start with this creed, right? That, that Paul is teaching this creed, that Peter's teaching this creed, and that the early Christians are teaching this creed. But when you get to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this in verse 55. He says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't just a head knowledge. Like we're, we're talking about like academic things here tonight, but it isn't just a head knowledge. It goes to every fiber of our being that the resurrected Jesus changes everything for our lives. It is a victory that we now share in forevermore, forevermore. It isn't enough for us to just believe up here, but let us take root in the fact that, yes, we can believe that Jesus did resurrect from the grave, and he is life forevermore. So, the question is, who is Jesus? Friends, I think it's absolutely clear. He is the Christ who died for our sins, was buried, and was raised again on the third day. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and life itself is found in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you Uh, For nights like this, just to kind of dive deep into the context and into the time. And I pray that you'll allow that understanding to really start to, to penetrate from our mind into our hearts and grow roots for us. Father, help us to believe in your name in a new way here tonight. Father, I pray that the resurrection will allow us to just receive that victory. That you share the resurrection with us. That you say if we're willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you, that we will have new life in your name. And I pray here tonight if there are things that need to die, I pray that you'll bring those things to the forefront and just have us just excitedly say, yeah, God, I'll let those things die because I know that there's new life on the other side of it. And so, Father, here tonight, expose some things for us. Help us, lead us into repentance into your name. Because, Father, it is a great name, and we do believe. Like, this is not just a theory anymore. We, we believe and we give our lives to this truth that Jesus did die on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and he did raise from the dead on the third day, and now we share in that victory. And so remake us here in that truth here tonight. We love you a lot. In Jesus' name, amen.